Hey, Bankless Nation, it is panel time today. Panels are some of my favorite discussions we have on Bankless, a great cross-section on a specific topic. And today we are talking about bridging, bridges, cross-chain bridges. Uh, this goes into a theme we've been talking about in 2022, which is the great layer two migration. I think there are a few reasons we're doing this. We'll get into them. But before I do, uh, David, we've got Ben here as a co-host for this topic. Uh, ben, it's great to have you. Uh, can you explain why Ben is joining us for this conversation? Yeah, uh, we did this uh, expert panel for EIP 1559, uh, and that was uh, co-moderated by another technical moderator, Tim Bako. And that was really, really useful because some of the developers out there just ask questions that I think are really, really smart that I wouldn't have thought to think myself. So Ben, we're bringing you in as a member of the Optimism team uh, as somebody who can ask some more technical questions than what Ryan and I would have thought about. Uh, and so we're going to, first off, before we get into the content, we're going to have just a little bit of a discussion. Uh, some questions that five panelists don't need to ask, like what are bridges? Um, but before we get there, Ryan, we have some things that we need to talk about, such as our friends at Onjuno. Onjuno is our new checking account for the crypto natives. Uh, and so for those that are frustrated that things like USDC or BTC or ETH aren't in your Wells Fargo account, Onjuno might just be for you. It's a checking account that loves crypto. So inside of Onjuno, you can get 4% on your USDC. You can also buy crypto assets with zero fees. And you can also get your paycheck in crypto. So when you get paid by your company, it can go straight into your Onjuno account and automatically get converted into, into crypto, reducing the amount of time that you need to hold the inflating dollars in your bank account. So big fans of there. Anything you want to add to that, Ryan? David, I've heard that, uh, you know, th that dollar is inflating away at 7% per year. That was just like as of this morning. So you definitely want to get a <laughs> crypto native bank account. So you're not using a, a legacy Wells Fargo bank account that's giving you like 0.01% interest rate. This is a way to do this. They also give you a fantastic uh, card as well. So a debit card, it's metal debit card. Really nice, really enjoying this. I set up my accounts recently, excited to get started. So if you're interested in doing that, use the code bankless. $50 on your first crypto paycheck. You can do that at onjuno.com. Uh, David, you know, I, I just want to say a few more things about why we are doing this topic on bridges today, because I think it's important. And there's really three reasons we're doing this. Um, the first reason is there's really no future world in crypto that doesn't require a massive amount of bridges. Okay. No matter what you believe about the future, whether it's going to be a multi-chain future with all sorts of different layer ones, okay, you need bridges. Whether this is going to be an Ethereum-dominated world with a bunch of layer twos, okay, you also need bridges. So bridges are this nascent infrastructure uh, and a massive opportunity, I think, both for users or and investors who are listening to Bankless. Um, the second reason, something that we've talked about in our modular blockchain uh, thesis is there's really no future for users on layer one, on Ethereum layer one. I want to say that again, because I think that's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people. There is no future for users on layer one, unless you're some kind of a whale, okay? The main chain is actually not for users anymore. It's for chains, okay? This is a layer two roll-up centric world. You can get caught up on bankless past episodes if you want to school yourself on that, including the one we released in early January with Vitalik. Uh, and the third reason is this, we've simply never done 
a full episode on bridges. And it's like, it's about damn time. Okay. Because bridges are going to be a huge topic in 2022. And I feel like the panel structure is the perfect way to get just a variety of different opinions and ideas and projects to the table to educate us on this subject. So we have a bunch of people on the panel. These are some of the biggest bridging projects. They bring you know different flavors, different approaches, different trade-offs, different design decisions, but this is a fantastic cross-section. Uh, a few more housekeeping items for you. As usual, if you have a question, a burning question you want us to ask, this is a live stream, okay? So go to YouTube, hit us up with those questions, use the troll chat box for that. We'll look at them, we'll filter them, we'll, we'll find the best ones, we'll bring that to the panel if it makes sense. Uh, and uh, with that, you know what, David, I think we should get to Ben mm -hmm. to give us a quick overview on bridges. So uh, what do you wanna lead with for like our 101 on, on bridges, David? Yeah, let's just start with the most basic question. Ben, what is a bridge? Because you know most people think bridges as like the thing that you drive your car over, over a river, but not in the world of crypto or, or cross chains, cross L2s. Just for, at the most basic level, what is a bridge and why do we need them? Indeed. Oh, and thanks for having me on, by the way, guys. These are my first words, and I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't start there. So <laughs> hi, everyone. Okay, what are bridges and why do we need them? Great question. So fundamentally, a bridge and bridging refers to the, at, at the deepest level, the passaging of communications between two different chains. So basically taking information from some authenticated source on one chain, sending it, sending it across to be authenticated or received on another chain. So that at the you know, most fundamental level is usually what it is. What is being communicated? Now that is most commonly movement of assets, right? So when you're moving your uh, tokens from one chain to another, you've got to bridge them somehow. So that's, you know, technically there, there's actually, when you're moving those tokens around, a sort of more fundamental thing that you might call bridging, that is like sending a message that says, hey, Alice has just decided to bridge over X amount of funds. This is the ERC-20. This is the amount. This is where the destination is. Uh, but, but most importantly, I think for users, this is talking about moving assets between chains. That's the most common form of communication. And um, well, we have a lot of great panelists um, trying to help facilitate. So diving into that a little bit more, what is technically going on behind the scenes? And I think this question actually might uh, unpack some different kinds of bridges. There mm -hmm. are cryptographic bridges and there are multi-sig bridges. Can you just uh, unpack what technically happens when you bridge an asset and how that is different based on what kind of bridges out there? That's, that's a great question. So I'll ignore the details. You know, we could obviously get into nuance of kind of the details of those messages that I was talking about, right? Because you have, you know, the messages got to express who is depositing, where they're depositing to, or it could be withdrawing, right? Where the, where the assets are being bridged to, what is the asset that's being bridged and so on and so forth. Um, I think what I would say is that there is a, like what is actually going on when you're bridging is really dependent, honestly, on what bridge you're using and what chains you're bridging between. And also what chains you're bridging between may have an impact on what bridges you can use or what fundamental things that you can do. So in general, I mean, to speak to my expertise on, on rollups, right? Cause that's what we're building with optimism. Generally, generally speaking, we there is a sort of native bridge that is sort of treated as the canonical secure way to move assets back and forth between the chain. And so when what, what's going on behind the scenes when you use that, which is for example, you know, maybe the default, if you go to like gateway.optimism.io, right? Usually what's happening there is basically on L1, right? On the uh, source chain, if you wanna generalize, right? Assets are being locked up and they're being locked up and they're emitting some sort of message or in the case of a rollup, an event or some sort of storage that says, hey, 
you know, Alice has locked up 100 ETH on L1 and Alice wants to use that ETH on L2. Please credit Alice 100 ETH on L2 for this money that she locked up on L1. And the only way to unlock those funds is if you bridge in the opposite direction, which says, hey, somebody who had those funds on L2 decided that they wanted to get it back out on L1. So they're trying to withdraw these assets. Please unlock those assets on L1. So that's usually what you're doing at a sort of native layer. And depending on the construction of the two different chains you're moving between, those might have different properties. So in the case of a rollup, we would consider this very secure because you have these fault proofs, right, that are basically a dispute layer that are going to keep those funds secure in all cases. But in general, what you can do is build on top of these chains and build on top of those native bridges, bridges that have different properties that might be more compelling or more economically efficient and make a different set of trade-offs in terms of things like security or user experience or what's going or what's going on. So when we talk about bridging, we're talking about locking funds in one place and unlocking them in the other. There's a lot of details that go on there. There's native bridging that can very tightly couple this in a very secure way that forms the basis for rollups. And then there are layers of applications that you can build on top that accomplish the same goals with some different sets of assumptions or trade-offs uh, that you might want to make. So that's sort of what's going on in, uh, in a bit of a ramble there. No, that, that makes it makes a ton of sense. And, and just to reiterate with rollups and also with multi-sig bridges going from across L1 to uh, across L2 or across from L1 to L1, there is what you call the canonical bridge, as in ultimately all things that are built on top of this canonical bridge use and it's the conversation what we're going to have today is how different implementations can use that canonical bridge in different ways to make things a little bit easier for users. Uh, and so there is the, the slow bridge, the canonical bridge, and then there's like fast bridges that I think most of the users of these L2 cross-chain ecosystems will ultimately use. And that is who so many of our panelists today are what they are building. And so, Ben, we have you from Optimism who's building a roll-up, which must include a canonical bridge or else how else would people get there? Uh, and then we have many of these uh, panelists that we're about to bring on after this who are using your canonical bridge to make different flavors of bridges that make different trade-offs. Uh, and so, Ben, my, my last question for you before we turn to our panelists, just what are you excited to hear about from these panelists today? What do you want to learn? What are you uh, interested in hearing about? And what should listeners have in their heads is what they should be paying attention to in order to get the most out of this panel? Mm, most definitely. So um, I hope you all are ready for some gardening because I want to get into the weeds. <laughs> so I definitely think we have an incredible lineup of different bridge projects here. And like I said, every bridge project makes different trade-offs, has different designs, and the implications of what the bridge gives you and what you give to use the bridge change. So I think that's going to be an absolutely fascinating thing. And I think for people listening that are trying to use you know, these bridges, that's incredibly important. It's really important to understand the properties of the system that you're using because there are bridges that may have weaker security assumptions. They may have stronger security assumptions. There may be ones that are more expensive. There may be ones that are cheaper. So I think that's one thing. And then I think the other part, for me at least, that I'm personally excited about is hearing a little bit about the future and sort of the more, uh, you know, next next year or two years of bridging, what's that's, what that's going to look like. Because now that we're starting to see many of these different chains coming online, we're really starting to see these bridge markets actually play out. And I think it's going to be really fascinating to hear what our panelists are uh, cooking up in the background for the next releases and that sort of thing. Well, I think with no further ado, we should go and get right into this panel because they have so many things to talk about. We have a list of questions that we're going to get through. So let's go ahead and get our panelists on the scenes right after we talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. 
Slingshot is a decentralized trading platform that combines the performance and ease of a centralized exchange with the openness and transparency of DeFi. Slingshot aggregates liquidity from all of DeFi in order to find the best price on thousands of crypto assets. Every token on Slingshot comes with a price chart and trade logs to give you insights into the market's activity in real time. Slingshot is available on Polygon, Arbitrum, and Optimism, saving you from the high gas fees and low transaction speeds of the Ethereum L1. There are no fees to trade on Slingshot, and any positive slippage is given to the users. Trading on Slingshot is a social experience. You can even set your chat avatar to your favorite NFT or soon a Slingshot 2099 NFT avatar. Once you bridge your assets to Polygon, Arbitrum, or Optimism, go to app.slingshot.finance to trade and use the chat box to share your trades with others and find other tokens to ape into. The Brave browser is the user-first browser for the Web3 internet with built-in privacy and ad blocking to keep you in charge of your digital footprint. Inside the Brave browser, you'll find the Brave wallet, the first secure crypto wallet built natively inside of a Web3 crypto browser. Web3 is freedom from big tech and Wall Street, more control and better privacy. But there's a weak point in Web3, your crypto wallet. The Brave wallet is different. Brave wallet is built natively inside the Brave browser, no extension required, which gives the Brave wallet an extra level of security versus other wallets. With the Brave wallet, you can buy, store, send, and swap your crypto assets, and you can even manage your NFTs and connect to other wallets and DeFi apps, all from the security of the best privacy browser on the market. Whether you're new to crypto or a seasoned pro, it's time to switch to the Brave wallet. Download Brave at brave.com bankless and click the wallet icon to get started. Arbitrum is an Ethereum scaling solution that's going to completely change how we use DeFi and NFTs. Over 250 projects have already deployed on Arbitrum, and Arbitrum's DeFi and NFT ecosystems are growing rapidly. Arbitrum increases Ethereum speed by orders of magnitude for a fraction of the cost of the average gas fee. When interacting with Arbitrum, you can get the performance of a centralized exchange while tapping into Ethereum's level of decentralization and security. If you're a developer who wants low gas fees and instant transactions for your users, visit developer.offchainlabs.com to get started building your application on Arbitrum. If you're a user, keep an eye out for your favorite DeFi apps or NFT projects building on Arbitrum. Many of your favorite apps are already live, with many more coming over soon. You can find these apps at portal.arbitrum.one, and you can bridge your assets over to Arbitrum using bridge.arbitrum.io in order to experience DeFi and NFTs the way it was always meant to be. Fast, cheap, and friction-free. All right, guys, we are back with all of our panelists. We have Hart from Across Protocol, also part of UMA. We have VC from Mover. We have Chris Winfrey from Hot Protocol. And we have Arjun from Connext. Uh, and you can see that order moving from left to right, but with Arjun at the bottom. Guys, thank you all for being here on this panel. And you can all answer at once uh, and all, or all say hi at once because we'll also introduce you guys all individually. But everyone, thank you for being here. Cheers. Thanks for having us. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having us. Uh, Thanks, so we're going to start with this very basic question, and we're going to go one by one. What is your project? What makes it unique? And uh, what's its flavor? Does it have a flavor? And let's start with Heart from Across Protocol. Totally. Um, well, thanks for having me, guys. Um, and yeah, our project is unique uh, because Across started as just a demonstration of what Uma's been building with our optimistic Oracle. Um, and so sidebar here. I actually know Ben from back in 2019, sitting in a conference room, screaming at me about how I need to be more optimistic. Um, and this actually- Never informed, be too optimistic. <laughs> never be too, literally what he was saying. And this informed the design we had for this Oracle, we call an optimistic Oracle that has a really simple concept where we can say, hey, everyone, anyone can say, ask a question on anything. Anyone can propose and answer that question. And that question is taken as truth if no one disputes it. 
Um, and so this is an optimistic approach to uh, ask getting data. And we realize we can use this optimistic oracle uh, to do cross-chain messaging and cross-chain to, to look at what's happening on other chains. Um, and so that's what Uma has been focused on with our optimistic oracle. And you know, about four months ago, the idea came to us that like, holy shit, this bridging thing is a big issue. Um, specifically, the specific question we're looking at is fast withdrawals from optimistic rollups or from rollups to layer one. And that's actually where we're focused. And we realized that we can come up with a design that uses our optimistic Oracle to quickly, securely, and in a capital efficient way, actually um, move assets back from L2 to L1. And across itself is this side project that the, the team behind Uma, it's called Risk Labs, built. We built it very quickly um, because it's using our Oracle and we built it as a demonstration of this optimistic Oracle technology with this specific focus, just focused on L2 to L1. Um, and it turns out it works really well, um, which like gets me really stoked. It's like, it's capital efficient, we'll get into those details later. Um, but that's, that's our origin story and that's how we got here. Awesome. Thank you, Hart, for that. That was Hart from Across Protocol, again, a product out of UMA. And now we are going to go to VC out of Mover. That's M-O-V-R. VC, uh, can you just tell us about uh, Mover? How, what's, does it have a flavor? What is it optimized for? What makes it unique in the world of bridges? Yeah, for sure. So like Mover is like probably quite uh, different than you know all other flavors here. Like uh, Mover, essentially, we call it like a meta bridge. Our, our approach here is like taking the modular uh, approach that that we saw with you know like uh, scaling L2s you know having like different settlement different DLR. So we are trying to take like a modular approach. We where we have like a standard um, bridge building framework that can be plugged into any sort of bridging mechanism, be it optimistic, be it HTLC based, be it like a Oracle or something, and that allows us or like you know developers to like build this this like hybrid sort of applications where you know like movement between l2s could be trustless but if that app also wants to go to some somewhere like solana they could use like a more you know trust minimized solution so we are we are trying trying to like go in this like uh, modular phase where people can build their bridge applications without you know kind of thinking of like what the exact bridging mechanism or like you know message transmission mechanism would be so yeah that's kind of like the unique uh, thing and the direction that that we are taking with mover and, you know, hope to showcase something really soon. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, VC. Moving into Chris. Chris from Hop Protocol. Chris, tell us a little bit about Hop. What's its unique feature? What's its flavor of Bridge? What's it like? Sure. And then thanks for having us on the show. And um, yeah, so we're building Hop Protocol. We're very optimized for Ethereum's ecosystem and Ethereum scaling solutions. So we actually use Ethereum as as a hub uh, to kind of bridge um, between all of the different layer twos and, and scaling solutions. And previously our team was working on a wallet called Ethereum. We actually built Hop at, just out of pure necessity uh, to get our users onto layer two, have them stay on layer two and just never touch uh, layer one at all. Um, and yeah, so it's very optimized for, for Ethereum's ecosystem. Awesome, and then last but not least, we have Arjun from Connext. Arjun. Our, Connects has been around for a real long time uh, and it started actually as payment channels before it turned into bridges. Arjun, can you tell us about uh, Connects and what flavor of bridge it is? What makes it unique? 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, as you mentioned, Connects has been for been around for a very long time. Uh, we actually built the first ever like non-custodial SL2 system on Ethereum. It was pretty cool in partnership with Spankchain in like 2018. Um, uh, obviously things have changed quite a bit since then because that was a very simple like micro tipping system uh, using pay payment channels. Um, uh, Connext is a uh, an interoperability network that lets you um, basically transfer funds and then also do some forms of message passing between chains. Um, so like calling contracts and things like that. Um, we're working towards like more general purpose interoperability. That's completely chain agnostic. Um, what we focused on is two things, uh, trust minimization. So we are extremely, extremely, extremely passionate about making sure that like Connects has the exact same trust trade-offs as, as you know, using Ethereum itself or, or at least as close as possible. And like, um, generally speaking, uh, the, the security model of Connects is effectively the same as the security model of a rollup itself. Um, uh, and then, um, or, or potentially better in some cases. Um, and then uh, in addition to that, uh, we, we also have focused a lot on extensibility. So like um, the, the, the idea there was that we don't quite know yet what the, what the right mechanisms are going to be are going to be in the future around like how L2s will be built. Um, and of course we also have this like uh, world right now where there are Ethereum compatible or even Ethereum friendly uh, chains that are not actually like tied to the base L1. Um, and there may actually be a room for, for those to exist as like a lower trust environment um, uh, or a more trusted environment, sorry, uh, in the future as well. Um, and the goal with Connects is just to make it one simple interface that allows you to connect to all of, all of these different systems. Um, uh, allows you to have like a true kind of internet of Ethereum. So Arjun, maybe um, you sticking on this for, for a moment, could you uh, tell us a bit more about how we compare these various bridging solutions, like sort of the, the trade-offs of them and also get into, if, if you're thinking about um, like the, the perfect bridge, the success criteria for a bridge, what are the KPIs that you really look at? Is it number of users using this thing? Is it amount of capital flowing through it? So first, how do we compare these bridges? And secondly, what are the success criteria and sort of KPIs? Yeah, um, so there's a, there's a mental model that we've been using. And of course, all mental models are simplifications, but I think this is a good simplification. Um, and the mental model is, is something that we like to call the, the interoperability trilemma or the bridging trilemma, um, which is similar, similar in concept to the scalability trilemma where all interop systems can only really have two of three properties. Um, and those properties are uh, uh, extensibility, so being able to like go to multiple chain, multiple different you know L2s and chains very easily, um, and work the exact same way in all of them. Um, generalizability, so the ability to do arbitrary data passing, and then trust minimization. Um, and what we've seen is that all bridges kind of like pick, end up having to pick for for just because they have to end up picking like two out of those three properties. Um, uh, everybody that's on this call uh, has selected. Uh, trust minimization and extensibility. So that's why you're able to like run the system on L2 and then also on uh, on Ethereum and also do it without, without you know, introducing a lot of trust. But the, you know, we've, we've talked earlier on this call about multi-sig bridges um, that, you know, multi-sig bridges pick generalizability and extensibility, but they're obviously more trusted. Um, so yeah, generally we've seen that there's like three overarching flavors of bridges. And then of course, a lot of other subcategories within them. Um, can you repeat the second part of your question? Yeah. So like success criteria for a bridge. What makes um what makes a bridge successful? Is it amount of capital? Is it uh, you know users? What what's what are the KPIs? Yeah, um, this one's a bit more difficult because it's like it depends on what the bridge is being used for, right? So like if if your system like Hop connects across, I guess everybody that's on this call 
um, your KPI is going to be like uh, transaction volume. So the amount of value that is flowing between chains, because the vast majority of what you're doing right now is like helping users transfer value from one system, one L2 or chain to another. Um, whereas, uh, you know, if you, if you, once you start moving towards like more generalized data passing, where you're allowing people to build like actually cross L2 apps that are fully generalized, um, uh, then it becomes a little fuzzier because it's like now you're running this like, you know, system on top of on top of these L2s and like the purpose of that system may not be to move funds. It may be, you know, just to pass arbitrary messages. So in that case, it would probably be something more similar to like Ethereum where it's like you look at number of transactions that the chain is doing um, or perhaps even like the amount of fees that are being earned by the by the actual uh, service providers. So Chris, wondering if you could kind of uh, build on Arjun's definition here. So we're talking about comparing different bridge projects and yeah, I'm struck by all the time how, how much surface area for education there is here because now, now we, uh, we need to do something with, with kind of the community and we need to make, make sure the community understands the difference between like multi-sig trusted bridges and these like more trustless bridges. And it sounds like all of the, the panelist participants fall, fall in the, the trustless category, but even within that, that, you know, uh, trustless category, what are the other trade-offs or, or differentiations you, you would make between these bridging projects? How can we, how can we compare them? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so, so there's definitely kind of a few trade-offs within this uh, trustless uh, design space of, of uh, bridges. And so um, I, I guess kind of the, the main uh, types of bridges would be like, you know, I, I think us and across share very similar properties where we kind of have both um, passive and active liquidity providers. I, I know we're going to be talking about that stuff a little bit later. Um, and, and basically, you know, have these active or yeah, have the active liquidity providers fully verify different um, chains and, and uh, facilitate the bridging and then have kind of the passive uh, liquidity providers take on uh, longer tail risk of, of stuff breaking or challenge windows not being long enough uh, and, and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, and, th and then the other side of things is, is uh, kind of like atomic swap uh, type of bridging and, and uh, you know, that, that can be trustless. It can be extended to chains outside of the Ethereum ecosystem, you know, which can't uh, necessarily happen with Hop. Uh, and, and, you know, this will, you know, UX-wise, you, you, you do have to wait for kind of like two steps of, of finality. So, so if, you if you're thinking about like an optimal bridge, uh, an optimal bridge will um, be able to do a transfer within just one step of finality. So, so you wait for the, the source chain to reach finality, and then you receive funds at the destination. Uh, and, and, and so like an, an atomic swap setup, you, you do have to kind of wait for, for two steps. So that, that's kind of one of the trade-offs, but then there are big advantages around capital efficiency and stuff like that, um, that, that are worth uh, taking a look at. So um, VC, VC at, at Mover, you, you guys uh, touch a whole bunch of different bridging solutions. And I'm, I'm trying for, for a minute to, to put us back in the headspace of a, a typical user who's like, I wanna get from here to there, from this chain to that chain. And they're, they're looking at the landscape and they see all of these different bridge solutions. You know, one's a two lane bridge, one's, you know, a one lane bridge. One is kind of just like, uh, I don't know, uh, built out of wood. The other is like a nice, you know, suspended bridge, all of these different bridge solutions. How do they evaluate the differences and make a decision on which is the best bridge to take? Is like safety? And security, the primary concern? Is it how much the toll is, how much it costs? What are the primary concerns from a user's perspective? 
Hmm. So like from a user's perspective, I would say, you know, like it, you know, kind of depends a lot on the user profile. So if it's like a DGN, you know, they they could like prefer a really centralized pitch that allows them to just, you know, kind of operate on a single database and just like move things around before the block on the sending side even receives finality because like the liquidity provider here can take the risk of the source side kind of rolling back. So like it it definitely kind of depends on like the user. Uh, so we've like kind of built out this thing called Fundmore, which is like a bridge aggregator that kind of like allows to just like see what all options are there right now. They're, you know, like different security properties, they're different like outputs, gas fees and so on. And, you know, kind of judge from there. So like a user, depending on his preference, can just like see what, what he prefers to, you know, kind of move his funds from one chain to the next. So, yeah. In a heart, I'm I'm wondering if you could weigh in on this this you know conversation so far. So, uh, is it? It seems like there's so many different bridge solutions. Is it good that the ecosystem has a, a plurality of different solutions, or is that is that more confusing? Uh, what types of bridge solutions do you think the ecosystem needs to develop in order to get us where we need to go in this this great migration from layer one to layer two? Yeah, Ryan, I'll give a, a controversial answer here, I think, um, which I, I hate. I, I think the number of solutions is problematic. And I think the different security properties they have makes this a shit show and actually exposes users to a lot of risk that they don't know they're taking. And so, again, this panel, we're all aligned in that we at least are, are closer to the trust minimization side of things or the trustless side of things. And we value that. Um, there's other people that are not on this panel that um, like are more generalized and support other chains that aren't on that. And there's some really scary shit um, going on out there. The problem in my view is that users are ultimately going to pick a bridge based on price and mostly based on price alone, or let's say price and speed. So um, I think that's going to end up being what we have happen. And that could be very scary um, if people pick up uh, uh, the cheapest bridge, um, but that has the worst security assumptions and then something goes wrong. So I think that there's this, uh, I think what we all got to do as, as like on this group of people, we got to get to be the cheapest. And I think price really matters here. Um, that, that's kind of my view. And we've got to be cheapest while being trustless. Um, and that means iterating on a, and I got a lot to say on that too, but right. you look like you're I, right to say. So I want to get like, to, oh. I want, I, I do want to get to, to Arjun and some of the others really quick, but, but like scare us straight for just one second here, Hart. Okay. So like when shit goes wrong, how, how could it go wrong if we're depending on centralized, more trusted solutions for bridging? Like why, why is this so bad? What is the iceberg that people don't see in the water? In some ways, I think, um, Ben's big brain might be actually best to answer some of the really scary shit here. But generally speaking, it's just like you don't get your money or the tokens you think you have, you just don't have, right? Um, and like, you know, 100% losses um, are a bad thing. Um, and then people providing liquidity, like losing out on that are a bad thing. And I think it's um, a reasonable expectation, a, a reasonable expectation to think that in 2022, some of the biggest hacks uh, will come from bridges or bad bridging solutions. That would be like my, my thesis. Ben, what would you um, add here? 
Yeah, I mean, well, <clears throat> definitely to, to Hart's main point, like, yeah, what do we need as a community? We need like the thought leaders and people with successful podcasts and Twitter followers to <laughs> tell those users about the dangers and trade-offs that they're making. So I feel like we're doing the right thing. I would say that bridge security is an interesting problem. There are these trusted bridges, which effectively assume the same security assumptions as side chains, right? So if you want to see a multi-chig bridge, right? A side chain is kind of like a multi-sig chain. And for some use cases, maybe that is the level of security you want. It's definitely less, but it's interesting. Um, and one, but one thing to add to that is that for the perspective of people that are bridging, there is one difference, which is that the funds that are in transit are the things that are at currently at risk of being locked. So it's not like once you bridge your money, the bridge collapsing an hour later could affect you, right? Like I think good bridge designs, even that are centralized and do have trust assumptions, they at least give you that. So like one thing I always tell people when they're bridging, if they want to use a you know sketchier, more custodial bridge is literally you should be going to the Twitter immediately before you bridge and look if they went down. Because realistically, if they're going to go down at some point in the next week, you might be fine using it right now, right? So you need to understand that risk and you need to be informed. I think the question that I would actually follow up and ask this panel, because I really liked Hart's comment that it's our responsibility to make the safe bridges and the, the trustless bridges as cheap as possible. I actually am curious though, I think this is a, at least a bit of an open question on my mind. Do we think that's possible? I think there is some intuitive argument that tells me trustless, trust, trusted bridges by making trust assumptions can exercise some capital efficiency that gives them an advantage. So I'm really curious if we think that we can get those bridges as cheap as possible, or do we think it's an impossibility result that there's a trust cost trade-off? Because I am worried that that's the case. Who wants to take that one first? Uh, Hart, you, that just, one. you just unmuted, so go for it. No, Chris, go ahead. Okay, Chris, go for it. Sure. So, Ben, I think you're right. Like, like I, I think that there are trade-offs that that you can do in a more uh, trusted way that we could just never compete with uh, in terms of of capital efficiency. That being said, I, I do think that um, there are trustless models. Um, you know, in, including where we're approaching, where where once you scale up, the fees just get so 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 cheap. Um, and, and so, like right now, we're you know. Bridging across Hop, you're probably looking at 10 to, to 20 basis points, um, more like nine uh, basis points if you're if you're bridging with ETH. Um, but you know, as that scales up more and more, the batches get bigger, uh, the, the fees really go through the floor, and and you know, it might be that that uh, users are willing to kind of stay within this uh, you know more trustless environment uh, because you know one or two basis points they just don't really care about. Yeah, I, I just have a question on this just to help me understand because this this new world hasn't yet come yet, right? It's still being developed. But do you guys think that like, you know how everyone complains about gas fees today? You know, as they should, I understand it's very expensive to transact on on layer one. Do you think tomorrow they'll be complaining about bridge fees? Like the toll to cross from from one chain to another is like too high and that'll be a a pain point for users? Is that the future we're looking at? What do you think, Chris? I, I personally think we'll only see high bridge fees when there's you know a huge net flow uh, in just one direction from like one chain to, to Ethereum or one chain to another chain. Uh, but when things are pretty balanced, I, I think you know as we scale up, fees are just going to go through the floor. Ben, you've got to so go ahead. No, I was going to say, David, is just to add like to Chris's point. I think that there are designed to, to Ben's question around just 
are there trade-offs here with capital efficiency versus trust assumptions? Um, I think there are designs that get more specialized that actually solve for this and even get a little bit in the weeds and compare what we're doing versus what Chris and Hop are doing. Um, we right now, we don't support L2 to L2 transfers, but we are highly capital efficient on L2 to L1 transfers. Um, whereas Hop, just on the flip side here, is less capital efficient on L1 to L2 transfers. It takes about twice as much money um, just from like a funding a pool side of things, but they can do L2 to L2 things. And so there's sort of like a trade-off here in our own designs that um, highlights to me, if you get pretty specialized, you can actually get really capital efficient. Um, and like right now for, for context, um, across can bridge a million bucks, a million USDC, our average fee on that over the last few days is about four basis points. Um, so it's like four cents per hundred dollars uh, to do that. And that's not, um, Ryan, back to your original point, that's not a cost that goes up with usage. That's like an interest rate fee. That's like a cost that only, uh, so, so unlike, unlike uh, L1s where the costs get more expensive as more usage happens, this isn't exactly the same thing. It's like, it's about a capital availability. Um, yeah, to like add on what Hart just said, I think we are like kind of missing out on, a, you know, uh, on a mechanism for for bridges that are like you know mint and based uh mint and burn based so like you know kind of like imagine a world where there are let's say only zk rollups that settle you know every five minutes or so uh then we can actually have like you know l2 to l1 and l2 to l2 you know like fast movement of assets you know within five minutes or you know like uh adding like l1 latency like 20 minutes or so without the need of external capital so I doubt there's like a, you know, trade-off between trust assumptions and cost. I think there's a trade-off between trust assumptions and latency. Uh, I think like that's much, much more likely. Uh, and yeah, I heard this first from James Bestrich. Yes. Yeah, um, just to follow on that, because I think I like completely agree. Like, I don't think the capital efficiency of the bridge is necessarily directly related to the trust considerations. Because like, if you think about, you know, systems like AnySwap or ThorChain, what they're doing is uh, utilizing a multi-sig bridge that is backed by stake and the staked asset is the token. And so like the, the capital efficiency of that bridge is not like, while you're normally thinking of the liquidity available in their liquidity pools, the capital, actual capital efficiency of the bridge also includes the staked assets because that's like the fallback mechanism. The, the benefit that those bridges have is not that they are more capital efficient, they're not. Um, it's just that, because they're using a multi-sig as this like cross-chain oracle, they are able to have fully passive liquidity provision for, for like the system and, uh, and or they're able to like mint and burn ticket, uh, tokens without really any recourse. So, you know, it's, it's almost like you, you don't necessarily, it's like less of a consideration around how capital efficient it is and more just around how difficult it is to build. Um, and of course, like it's it's the same as like sidechains versus L2s. Like L2s will get cheaper than sidechains at some point. It's going to take more work to get there, but they will get cheaper. Um, it's just that sidechains are very readily available. They're very easy to build and roll out. 
it's going to take more work to get there should be the hashtag of Ethereum, I think. <laughs> and so it makes sense. <laughs> it makes sense that all the people with uh, trust minimized, minimized bridges are all kind of aligned on that. Um, ben, I want to tie off this section of our, our questions with, with this question, and hopefully that can lead us into, into the next uh, phase of, the, of this panel. But um, we, we've, we have so many different flavors of bridges here and so many different trade-offs. And uh, from... At the end of the day, if we want crypto to take over the world, like users are just not going to care. They're just going to want to press buttons and have things happen. So, and we've started to see some of this in the uh, the decentralized exchange landscape, where first there was Uniswap, uh, and then there were other decentralized exchanges, and now there's more decentralized exchanges, and then there became decentralized exchange aggregators. Um, some of these aggregators are built right into MetaMask, thing, and also things like like Matcha and, and OneInch are just making it a lot easier for people to just route around the different liquidity in DeFi to get what they want. Is the future of bridging something like this, where just an aggregator just says, hey, we'll take care of all of these complexities and trade-offs? Is this a logical conclusion? Can we take a page out of the history of DeFi to extrapolate into the future of bridging? Yeah, I think that what Hart said is probably accurate, which is that users are probably most reactive to price. So that argument would indicate that bridge aggregation is a very strong potential future. I'm sure, I'm sure that uh, Vibob agrees with that. Um, what I would say to build on that is that ultimately it's not quite the same from a technical perspective as these, as these exchange aggregators. Because in the example of a one inch or a matcha, the trust assumptions of the DEXs that are being aggregated are completely homogenous, right? So at the end of the day, no matter what new bridge, or pardon me, no matter what new DEX that one inch chooses to integrate next, the fundamental contracts that are a part of the one inch system will enforce that the exchange rate is only, you know, held if it was agreed upon by the user and the money came from somewhere. This is not the same as these different bridges because you are relying on more than smart contract security. It depends on what you know details and those trade-offs that we just talked about are made. But I do think that it's worth noting that that's a fundamental difference. An exchange aggregator, it's all contracts on L1. It's all 100% composable, all of that stuff. That's not the case for bridge aggregation. So I think what will play out will definitely be dependent on cost. I think it will also be dependent on the same depth of reaction to security trade-offs that users will have actually with using chains as well. So definitely a world that I've imagined is one where like in my wallet, I can kind of say how trusted I am. And then maybe the aggregator will only aggregate the top, you know, 10% of most trustless bridges or whatever. Right. So I think those questions are just general like crypto UX questions that apply to sovereign chains as much as they apply to the bridges between them. And I hope that as we get more sophisticated software, it'll all disappear in the background but we'll be able to keep uh, being trustless. Yeah, Ben, I just add to you that I think there are a lot, a lot of parallels to what has happened with DEXs here too. And then there are the differences you pointed out, but parallels, for example, like um, uh, it was Ryan or David, but you said you kind of started with Uniswap, but they weren't the first. It was like 0x before that. And 0x was like active liquidity provision, which is kind of like, connects and some of this other stuff. And then it became really useful in other ways in the future once it got aggregated. And then like Uniswap V3 was super capital efficient in this one thing. And Uniswap V3 is winning on the volume things because of their capital efficiency. And then it's getting aggregated up. 
so if you kind of want another view, I think there is going to be this pattern of these different techniques will have their strengths and weaknesses. Um, there will be a, a strong focus on capital efficiency and fees. Um, and then somebody will aggregate this all together. But then you add in the complication, like what Ben talked about, is that it, they're not homogenous trust assumptions. And so here, the role of the aggregator, I think, actually becomes all that more important because the aggregator is now the gateway that's going to pick which bridge solutions are actually safe and which aren't. Um, that would be my thesis for, or my hypothesis for how this world plays out in the next three years. And I, I just wanted to add something to Hart, uh, what you were saying earlier about like the, the, you know, whether we can achieve kind of the same fees that, that a trusted bridge can achieve. And I think what you were saying, Arjun, makes a ton of sense. Like, like basically the, the, the trusted bridges can have just purely passive liquidity and they're, they're active, you know, what, what in our cases would be liquidity providers. They're, the active piece of their bridges are just multi-sigs. They don't have any kind of capital requirements. And, and so like, you know, what you were saying, Hart, I, I think the way uh, across is, is able to kind of achieve uh, like more capital efficiency is just by, by shortening that, that challenge window. Um, so, you know, outside of the passive liquidity the you know, the capital efficiency comes down to like, how long do these active liquidity providers need to lock up capital? So, so with, with hop, we have a full day, uh, challenge period. And I think with across you've, you've taken it down to, uh, three hours. Uh, and, and so like, while, while that is, you know, eight times shorter and, and eight times more capital efficient, it, it is, you know, it could be argued that it is kind of trending into that, that more trusted territory uh, by, by having that uh, shorter challenge window. I do have a response to that, but we can come back to it later. So, VC, do you want to add in any thoughts? Yeah, uh, just on the aggregator thing, I think like uh, for uh, DEX aggregators, we could like, you know, pretty much black box the whole thing because like, you know, everything's atomic, you know, uh, you don't care what, uh, what decks you are going through, uh, until you get, you know, X amount of die at the end of the transaction, but, uh, kind of bridge aggregators are more like, you know, this, uh, this like sky scanner wipe where you need to like, you know, kind of select, do I want to go via Lufthansa or do I want to go via this, like, you know, some new that I've like never heard of flight, which is cheaper, but I, you know, kind of trust Lufthansa more. So it's like going to be there where like users have to like, you know, make like a manual selection or like what security properties they are opting into. But yeah, we can like kind of abstract all of that out by, uh, you know, having this like, we are like still working on this, but uh, having this sort of like uh, security score per bridge that like a, a aggregator or like, you know, us as a community can decide on. And then people can just be like, hey man, just give me all the bridges with security for a uh, security score for and above and so on. So like, I think like, you know, by working on some like UX stuff, we can make it happen. Arjun, you want like to add in some thoughts? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, um, I like the Skyscanner analogy a lot. And, uh, and I mean, it's a little dark because basically what you're saying is like the trusted, the trusted bridge equivalent is like, you know, your plane crashes because it's less trusted. Um, but I, I, do, I do like the analogy because it's, you're right that like, uh, you know, users, users will eventually, in theory, learn to like base their choices on more than just, just price. Um, I wanted to touch on capital efficiency a little bit. Uh, because I think that's a that's a really important point, and I think that's like one of the ways that like we try to differentiate as well. Um, and 
you know, I, I, one thing to note is that like, like capital efficiency is largely ends up being determined by like the constraints around your protocol. So in the case of like hop, the capital efficiency comes or like the, you know, the capital usage comes from the need for passive liquidity on both chains and then the lockup. Um, in the case of across, it comes from, you know, the, the, the shorter lockup and then like the, the, like, uh, the money that is kept in reserve in the event that like fraud occurs and dispute needs to happen. Um, and so I think like in the, in the interest of kind of talking a little bit more about capital efficiency, I think it's important to remember that like, while it's true that capital efficiency is super important, it may not actually end up being the case that it results in like the best possible price. Um, and the reason is that like, uh, the overhead that you end up going through to be able to ensure high capital efficiency and all doesn't always end up being valuable. So like a, a good counter example to this is like, you know, um, so like the way that connects works, for instance, is like, uh, you have a set of LPs and then you, and then like, um, you basically just directly swap with the LPs. The LPs take no capital lockups. Their lockups are like less than two minutes. Um, and, uh, and so it, it ends up being a really capital efficient system. And like the, the idea behind it is very similar to like RFQ systems or clearing houses. And the problem is in many cases, those RFQ systems, you know, like those RFQ systems didn't actually really work out that well for DEXs. And the reason is just like the additional overhead and complexity involved in having order books to like match trades with, with between people ended up costing a lot more money than, than like using a slightly less capital efficient system like Uniswap, um, right? Like Uniswap doesn't have, didn't have great capital efficiency. Um, 80 plus percent of the liquidity was just never used. Um, it was just sitting there. And, uh, but at the same time, like you, because you had this really easy system, which is really predictable and nobody had to deal with like on-chain order books and nobody had to deal with all of this other complexity, users ended up saving a lot of like cognitive costs and then also ended up saving a lot of costs in terms of having to wait for things, having to like post their data upfront on-chain. Um, and I think like those things are also pretty important to consider as part of this like larger conversation around costs. Guys, this has been a, such an amazing conversation. I'm going to have to listen to this again once we are done here. Uh, we're going to come back with a question out of Ben about Vitalik's uh, cross-chain commentary, a blog post that he wrote in the past that uh, ha has predictive components, perhaps, about the future of a multi-L2 world versus a multi-L1 world. I think that's a, a topic a lot of us want, want to unpack. So we're going to come back with that right after we get to some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. When you shop for plane tickets, you probably use Kayak, Expedia, or Google to compare ticket prices. So why would you limit yourself to just one exchange when you trade crypto? When you make your trades, you want to make sure you're getting the best possible price on your trade. And that's why you should be using Matcha. Matcha has smart order routing that splits your trade across all the various liquidity sources in Ethereum. And is also operational on Polygon, Avalanche, Binance Smart Chain, and other chains. Trading on Matcha is super easy because it pools the liquidity for me in a single, easy-to-use platform and allows me to make limit on-chain orders so you can set and forget your DeFi trades and they will go through automatically while you're away. So when you're making a trade, head over to matcha.xyz slash bankless and connect your wallet to start getting the best prices and most liquidity when you trade your crypto assets. The Gemini Exchange has been my exchange of choice ever since I got into crypto. I use Gemini to both buy the dips and also manage my regular automatic monthly purchases of my preferred crypto asset. On Gemini, you'll find over 50 different cryptos, including many of the top DeFi and metaverse tokens like YFI and Axie Infinity. Using Gemini Earn, you can earn yield on your various cryptos, including 8% on the GUSD stablecoin. Gemini is available in all 50 states and more than 50 countries worldwide. So if you're looking to upgrade your crypto exchange, sign up at Gemini with Gemini.com slash GoBankless and get $15 of Bitcoin after you trade $100 or more within the first 30 days. That's Gemini.com slash GoBankless. 
Bankless is proud to be sponsored by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum that lets you trade any token at the current market price. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. The Uniswap Grants Program is accepting applications for grants. Do you have something of value that you think you want to contribute to the Uniswap ecosystem? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a unique grant at uniswapgrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. Thank you, Uniswap, for sponsoring Bankless. All right, welcome back, y'all. Okay, so I wanted to kick off this next question prompted by a post from Vitalik. I think it was in an AMA, but he also tweeted it. By the way, Vitalik's back on Twitter this year. Very exciting. Um, that was talking a, a lot about some of the, the trust-related conversations that we've been talking about here. So I'll try to very briefly, it's, it's, a, it's a longer post. I'd I'll, I'll recommend you check it out as listeners if you haven't posted on January 7th. But I think that maybe a bit of background, which I would share is that originally when we were thinking about uh, bridging or these cross-chain sort of scenarios, the actual first thing that came up was something called an atomic swap. And this is actually not a direct messaging. There's actually never really a uh, in-protocol way that one chain talks to another, but it was a way that two users with assets on two different chains, oh my God, adorable Doge, Arjun, two different, two different users on two different chains could agree to a price and trustlessly swap you know, I mean, what was in the beginning, like Bitcoin for Litecoin. I think that's Dan Robinson's classic joke is like, what is Litecoin's use case? It's for being the example of the other coin in a cross-chain swap. So anyway, in, in any case, that's, that's sort of a different uh, form of swap in some sense than what we're starting to see in more advanced ecosystems. And it actually is very similar to this analog analogy we were making right before the break, where ZeroX and uh, EtherDelta had were DEXs that had order books, and then we moved to Uniswap, which had this more passive form of liquidity. So there's actually a similar thing that's emerged in cross-chain discussions, which is basically whether you, which basically comes down to wrapping one asset on another chain. So before we had these protocols where you could exchange ETH for Bitcoin, and there were different protocols to do that, and you could do that fairly trustlessly between two people. Later on, we realized that there were these UX advantages of having something like WETH, well, I mean, wrapped Bitcoin, where you would, or keep, right, where you would actually take Bitcoin and sort of express it as an ERC-20 token on Ethereum. And Vitalik's kind of argument here is that that's less secure, because imagine that you take one asset on one chain, and then you wrap it and express it on another chain, then you wrap it and express it on another one, and you wrap it and express and express it on another one, right? You have all these hops, no relation to hop protocol, you have all these hops of connected wrapping and wrapping and wrapping. And there's a risk that if any step in that wrapping process fails, you wouldn't be able to unwrap. So if any of the chains along the way were able to unwrap, were, were, able, were to go down, then you risk you know, the entire sort of chain of wraps. So this is the sort of term he used was arguing that the future will be multi-chain, but it won't be cross-chain because this wrapping exposes uh, security. So I'm just really curious. Honestly, I saw a lot of great discussion about this online. I think there were strong points for and against, but you guys are the cross-chain experts. So I'm curious for your takes, if you guys have any spicy opinions, thoughts, agree, disagree. I don't know. It's a bit of an open question, but hopefully someone has something interesting to say. Yeah, I think it's super interesting. Like uh, a lot of people were thinking about IBC as kind of like holy grail. You could do L1 to L1 bridging and, and you know, not have a lot of uh, trust assumptions. 
Um, my, my biggest takeaway here was that we kind of think about 51% of attacks as these like end all be all like worst case scenario. And, and I think what uh, Vitalik is, is saying here is that, you know, we shouldn't necessarily optimize for preventing a 51% attack in, in like all absolute cases. Uh, and, and that, you know, that there are good ways to recover from 51% attacks and that you're only kind of like the only things that are, are at risk are kind of the in-flight uh, transactions during the 51% attack. And, and that his point is that once we kind of get into this like cross-chain world, not just a multi-chain world where, where you're using uh, assets based on one chain on another chain that, that has, you know, a completely different uh, consensus layer, that now all assets are at risk. And, and this is much, much less secure than, than if, if everything's on the same consensus chain and we can, you know, do our social recovery from a, a 51% attack. So that, I thought that was a big insight um, for myself. Yeah. Um, so we've we've spent a bunch of time thinking about this as well because you know, uh, like I said, we're 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 sort of this open system that can be kind of permissionlessly deployed um, right now to EVM chains, but it's also possible to plug us into anything, and uh, and that definitely brings up a lot of complexity, right? Because it's like, what happens if uh, someone is we we sort of inherit all of the security properties of like the chain and tokens that were that are being used in our system, but like what happens if someone plugs us into like XYZ chain that has zero economic security and that XYZ chain has their own representation of USD, USDC or, or DAI or something. Um, you, can, you can basically use that, that really, really centralized, very, very insecure chain as a way to like um, spoof US, fake USDC or fake DAI back to Ethereum, take it from this very low security environment to very high security environment. Um, and it's, it's unclear how that should be handled, right? Because like, you know, if you want to get to the to the ideal case where like bridges across chain bridges are like fully trustless and they're permissionless and nobody can really stop them, then um, how do you stop this from happening? Um, I think like my 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 personal view is that there are there are a need to like bridge over blue chip assets and like have them exist in wrapped forms on different chains. Um, that does add to security risk. Uh, I think we'll probably have to. The, the sad reality is like, even, even if we like in a closed room environment say that's not the most secure option and that adds a lot of tail end risk, it's going to happen. So I, I almost think that the, the discussions should more be, should more be around like, uh, how do you mitigate the risk of, of, these, of these potential cases rather than stop them? Um, because there really is no way to stop them. And from a mitigation standpoint, I think there is some really interesting things that you can do using models like Connect, Top, um, I'm actually not sure about across. I, I would need to think about it a little bit more, but like in the case of things like Connects and Hop, you're you have like pricing on a chain change dynamically based on demand for that chain. Um, and that pricing can reflect this risk in a in a decently realistic way if if like a, a black swan event happens. And the other thing is that that pricing can actually adjust. Like, you know, we we talked earlier about like what happens if everybody is going from one direction to another uh, on a given chain, like. Uh, you know, through Hop or through Connect. Well, at a certain point, the price is just going to get incredibly expensive, and it's going to become unfeasible for people to continue trying to move more liquidity out. Um, I think there's some. I think you can use those sorts of things as like interesting risk indicators. Uh, but yeah, uh, go ahead, Hart. No, Arjun, all I was going to say is like I actually think one way we reduce the bridging of blue chip assets, um, like cross chain. Um, like, for example, take like blue chip DeFi tokens on Ethereum. Like, how do we reduce the bridging of that cross chain? 
but we make it such that there's no need to bridge it to another chain, which we do by making L2s really fucking awesome, right? Excuse my language. So I actually kind of put this all back on Ben, where like music to it, my ears, baby. But but I'm, I'm I'm actually dead serious. Like to me, it's never really made sense to take like an Ethereum based asset and put it on Solana unless Ethereum's ecosystem is so expensive to use. There's like you can't do the thing you want to do on Ethereum. And that's like not maybe always true. Maybe you want to use it as like collateral to lend in the Solana ecosystem or something. But I generally speaking think that if like L2s are really, really good, the need to like leave the Ethereum bubble goes down. I could, it would be a whole separate, separate discussion if I started rambling about how L2s need to address the real concerns that Solana poses that Ethereum tries to stick in its head, its head in the sand about sometimes, but we'll save that for another day. <laughs> well, I, I actually have a follow-up on this because so one of the implications I think of this post, so Vitalik used this, this term uh, zones of sovereignty to sort of define kind of the difference, like for people who aren't tracking. So on Ethereum, if you have an ERC-20 on Ethereum and you put that on a layer two chain, you inherit basically the, the asset inherits the economic security of layer one. But when you bridge that ERC-20, that token, from Ethereum to, say, Solana or um, you know, Tezos or um, Avalanche or something like that, then, then you lose those security properties. And it actually becomes a different asset. Right? It's like an asset that you're, has different trust assumptions. And you, can't, you don't have the same security guarantees that uh, it's actually backed by the things you think it's backed. Okay, And so... The implication of this, I think everyone going into 2022 from a macro perspective, and that's why I want to throw this question to the bridging uh, panel, but from a macro perspective, investors, users, everyone is looking at like two different paths to the world. One is this multi-chain path. And by multi-chain, I'm not talking about the way Vitalik's using it, but multi-chain meaning like there's Ethereum and then there's all sorts of other L1s. And it's this universe, kind of like the Cosmos vision, the IBC type vision of things. That's sort of the multi-chain path. And then there's another path where you have Ethereum as a settlement layer, and it is kind of the dominant settlement chain. And then you have a bunch of layer twos, and it's kind of an Ethereum ecosystem, and that's sort of the dominant player. I think investors, users, everyone is trying to figure out what's going to happen. Is it going to be A, like multi-chain universe, or B, is it going to be layer two Ethereum ecosystem dominated universe? I'm wondering if this this zones of sovereignty thing provides a clue here, like if bridging is actually the, the clue here, because it strikes me if you have a multi-chain world, you have a completely different set of trust assumptions here, and it might actually break down when we start trying to bridge assets from chain to chain to chain. I don't know if anyone on the panel has a thought on that, but like it's something that has consumed me very much like in 2021 and going into 2022. How do you think bridges play into that? Um, just throw up, uh, Arjun, maybe you have a point on this. Yeah. Um, so there's there's like there, there's sort of like an objectively ideal solution, and then there's like what's probably going to happen because the world is messy and people hate standards. Um, the objectively ideal solution is always going to be to have one settlement layer, right? Because like the whole point of this ecosystem, the whole point of the work that we're doing here is to move towards a world where you have the maximum amount of crypto economic security associated with this like base layer. Um, and so it makes sense to concentrate all of that into one chain. 
um, because that provides the best kind of long-term economic guarantees against what could potentially and probably will potentially one day be like sovereign level, state level actors attacking a chain. Um, in that vision, yes, you know, data availability shards, L2s, that is, that is the best world because you, what you're saying there is like, um, everybody is leveraging Ethereum's crypto economic security. No one else needs to think about bootstrapping a validator set anymore because bootstrapping validator set is hard and it's expensive and in, it, you know, it fragments liquidity. Um, and instead you just focus on like execution and other, other pieces built on top. Unfortunately, um, as I mentioned, people hate standards. Like even, even in a non, uh, bag holder environment, like the internet itself, uh, like is made up of a ton of protocols. And of course we know that, you know, we know about TCP IP, we know HTTP, like we know these things have been generally adopted at standards, but also there are a ton of other protocols that people don't know about that, that get used all the time. And like, we actually have to build adapters to all of them. And it's, it's a huge mess. And in those cases, like none of these were, you know, like uh, community funded or VC backed companies trying to issue a token and create their own communities like that. Those, nobody had any, any stake in the game except for ego. Um, and so I, I think like the reality is that, you know, we'll probably have some combination of the two. We'll probably have this like Ethereum universe. Um, and then we'll also probably have a Solana universe and a Cosmos universe and a, and a you know, XYZ Polkadot universe. Um, and, uh, and they'll sort of follow this like long tail pattern. Um, and we'll have to kind of figure out how, how it should work once we get there. I, I totally agree with the kind of power law distribution, like, you know, having kind of probably Ethereum captured the majority of, of high value use cases um, just because it is optimized for uh, decentralization and security. Uh, and then, you know, I do think we'll see other chains that, you know, where, where use cases, you know, might not make sense on Ethereum, you know, even if we can get uh, layer twos to be like the theoretical maximum efficiency, there's always going to be use cases where you need, you know, sub one cent transaction fees, sub one basis point uh, transaction fees. Uh, and, 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 you know, I, I think it's, you know, while it's important that we, we like capture as much as we possibly can and drive those fees as low as we possibly can on Ethereum's layer two, I think it's also important to kind of uh, recognize that, that, that there's use cases that, that, you know, should be very interoperable and close with Ethereum where users can like go on another chain and, and play a game where they make a hundred transactions and, and don't have to pay, you know, a thousand dollars to play that game. And then, and then can always retreat back to safety uh, to Ethereum. And, and so like chains like, uh, like Polygon and, and stuff like that, I think have kind of provided that more of like a playground uh, where, where users can, you know, keep their secure funds on say optimism where, where they know that they have this, this like absolute strong, like I can keep my life savings here, you know, maybe one day, uh, maybe today. Uh, and then they can also take, you know, say like a hundred bucks or the amount of money you keep in, in your, your wallet, your actual wallet uh, and go, go play games and, and, and then come back to safety. All right, guys, I think we're going to start to wrap up some of the, the questions here. Ben, do you have any last questions that you want to hear from our panelists before we come to our closing questions? Oh, man. I mean, I, I do because I could talk with hours and do talk with hours for hours with all these folks. I think none without opening up a big new thread of discussion that maybe we don't have time for. I think the name of this game, though, was trade-offs, and that would be what all my questions are about. And if there's one takeaway for the, the audience is trade-offs. Always, and not just about L2s, but about 
all things crypto, but then also about all things life, just trade-offs all the way down. Um, th there's one last question that Hart brought up during the break, and it's about how are bridges going to be used? Um, and I think that, Hart, you might even be able to ask this question yourself better to yourself. So can you go ahead and ask that question and then also answer it? Sure, the ask my, answer my own question thing. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah no, David, my point here is I think it's useful to have a thesis for how we think this bridge usage is going to get um, played out. And I, I'd actually really want to hear other people's opinions and perspective. Um, and and I, I want to be opinionated here. So in my opinion, our goal as kind of Ethereum maximalists-ish, right, is we want people to stop using L1. I think Ryan made this point earlier. Like users, stop using L1, get to L2. And our goal from a consumer perspective is to have people bridge in one direction and not go back to layer one. That's like something that is good for the Ethereum ecosystem. So then my question actually becomes like the question I ask myself is like, who actually does the bridge in the other direction? Like maybe the whole optimistic roll-up uh, withdrawal window isn't a problem if nobody's moving back to L1. Um, and I think actually for the vast majority of users, they're not going to be moving back to L1. That's the whole point. The people that will be moving back to L1 though are arbitrageurs. And I think that's where this real use case comes from. So you're going to have people that are like seeing price differentials on the Uniswap deployment on Optimism versus the Uniswap deployment on Ethereum. And you have arbitrageurs that need to move back, need to balance these trades across assets. And that's the thing they got to do. So from a crosses perspective, just to share insights on how, what we're thinking here, we're trying to be really hyper-efficient and really, really low cost for big transfers from L2 to L1, specifically to help arbitrageurs do that job. Because I think that the core user is going to go in the direction to L2 and not move back. And that's, that's I'm kind of want to know what other people think of that. There is then one other like sidebar, which is what about going L2 to L2? And that's something that like we don't do right now. And that I think is a strong use case where then you could have consumers that are on optimism, but want to use Arbitrum or whatever else. And so there's a bridge case there. Um, but I think I'm talking too much. So my question to the panel, how do you think people will use L, like how would you think people use bridges? What do you think the future is? And like, what are your opinions there? Hmm. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll, you know, probably add, add some points here. So like most likely arbitrages are, you know, like not, not going to be, you know, like heavy bridge users to like, you know, capture like this, like arbitrage opportunities, because like at the minimal, we have to like wait for finality on the source side, you know? So like at the minimal, it's, it's like, you know, going to be two seconds, five seconds and arbitrage opportunities are lost in like, you know, like a minute of milliseconds, right? So it's like most likely going to be arbitrageurs like having two different liquidity pools and, you know, kind of using and like their own like, you know, satellite system and kind of, you know, using their own liquidity pools between these two, you know, chains and rebalancing via layer one. Yeah. And uh, apart from like, maybe like the users won't directly go to lay layer ones, but I think like conditional transfer uh, protocols or repayment protocols like hop. So like, you know, other like bridges could, you know, just like batch all of these user transactions and, you know, just like do a single on-chain transaction for them. So, it, you know, most likely will be rebalancing across the, uh, you know, different arbitrage pools across, you know, different chains and like, you know, other, other bridging protocols and so on. But yeah, 
uh, most likely hopefully you know things remain on a, on a, the l2 yeah like that that was kind of our approach it was really you know optimizing for layer 2 to layer 2 stuff cuz you know like you're saying hard you know a majority of users are kind of moving to layer 2 right now uh and then, and then not necessarily moving back and and what we're seeing is this like really diverse and rich uh set of layer 2 uh solutions kind of come up uh and and so you know like obviously Op- optimism and arbitrum are are big ones and then the uh the zk rollups are starting to to get traction but the you know the, i i kind of expect the zk rollups maybe to have a slower start uh just because a lot of them are requiring a custom language or something like that but there still might be use cases where a user wants to jump over to that chain they want to use those applications and they need to be able to kind of move across this this rich layer 2 ecosystem um very fluidly so you know i i kind of see that as as how users are are using these bridges to go from one app to the next depending on uh what what underlying l2 solutions it's uh built on the ability to to fluidly move from one layer 2 to another layer 2 feels like table stakes feels like a necessity this is core infrastructure if we're going to get to uh where we started this panel with the episode with is the great migration to to L2 from L1 to L2 something that is in process now happening in 2022 but i'm wondering as we close with this last question from the perspective of the the bridging projects themselves how long do you think this great migration is going to take like how long until we are fully off layer 1 into this glorious layer 2 world the bridges are in place people you know new users on board onto layer 2 they use bridges to you know hop from place to place and 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 do their work that way and they never they never even need to touch layer 1 that is the end destination but how long is it going to take to get there chris what do you think Yeah, I, I kind of think it's going to be uh slow and then all at once. Uh you know, what one thing we're really looking out for are token incentives and, and so like uh Lido Cohen from from our team has been working on a proposal with Uniswap to uh incentivize uh you know, more liquidity on layer 2s. Um and then there's this this really kind of uh I, I don't know if it's called like a if you would call it a network effect, but it's kind of uh as more people move to layer 2s the the more the layer 2s take up the block space on layer 1 driving the cost up forcing more people to then move on to layer 2s and then it kind of has this flywheel effect where now all of a sudden you can't really afford to to transact on layer 1 because the layer 2s are are taking up all of the block space so you have to move Arjun what do you think timeline how long is this great migration going to take um so uh, for, first of all i just want to say like there it is fully 100% percent possible to use ethereum right now without ever touching l1 like that is already available to everybody um we have users in our ecosystem for some reason I, and i don't know exactly how this happened but a lot of the users that enter into our ecosystem are like fresh fresh users to crypto who have n- never really even used metamask before and we end up having to debug a lot of that which is sometimes kind of challenging um <laughs> but uh what we're seeing though is that like a lot of these people are are kind of jumping headfirst into you know uh the ethereum l2 ecosystem and some of the ethereum friendly sidechains and they are never touching ethereum because they're completely priced out um and they're only interacting with l2 applications and that's created this like massive l2 applications that don't never really exist on ethereum would never really have deployed on ethereum but they're just they're just l2 native um i think like 
you know, as, as Chris mentioned, it's, it's like a flywheel effect, like it's going to happen. And like, it, it's like sort of every hockey stick where, you know, you sort of see this kind of like growing like this. And then all of a sudden it shoots up because like the, the exponential effects just kind of kick in more and more. Um, and we are rapidly approaching that. Um, I would say for me, the biggest barrier is really just going to be like uh, token incentives, really big one. And then, um, uh, you know, uh, it'll, it'll be the, uh, like the, the things that drive down the costs of rollup via like bigger batching. Um, uh, so, you know, uh, Arbitrum Nitro, um, I think Optimism, you guys might've just done this, uh, but basically things that push down those gas costs even further. VC, what would you add to this timeline? What do you think? Timelines are definitely hard, you know, be, being a dev, like I, I have extremely bad estimations so like you know definitely wouldn't comment on that but yeah like the graph definitely agree it's it's like going to be hockey stick growth uh, whenever it happens there is there's still a lot of work to do as we all you know kind of uh uh got to before uh so yeah here's to just like you know hoping it it happens sooner than later uh and you know i think everyone here is is, is like you know 100 confident that it's going to happen and we are all here you know just like trying to empower that uh, thing whenever it happens. Whenever it happens. Art, anything to add here? Yeah, my very cheeky answer is: um, tell me when uh, Optimism and Arbitrum release their token, and I'll tell you when that hockey stick. Can happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a uh, may- maybe we should end with Ben then. Uh, you know, fi- final thoughts on this discussion, Ben, and uh, y- maybe your perspective on timeline too. I mean, we set yeah, up the hashtag, checking. guys. We set up the hashtag, guys. It's L222, baby. You know, you know it's coming. No, I, I feel like similarly to VC, I've gotten in enough trouble for uh, for trying to predict timelines over the years. I think that definitely the most important point, and I'm really interested to hear you, Arjun, having this from a bridge perspective as well, because I almost think of bridging as being like an advanced thing. So it's really exciting to hear that you are getting like new crypto users using it. For what's worth, Fiat on and off ramps are live on Optimism today. And I think other L2s as well. So like it already is the case totally that you can move straight into L2. So I am hoping, and I would think I would make that prediction that that is going to drive usage. And depending on what happens with the fee markets as well on L1, I think that will just naturally continue to drive that usage. So I think big things are coming this year. VC is right. We should never, we should never put timelines on things, but all the pieces seem to be in place. The Bridging is super nice. You can buy the ETH on L2 directly. All the pieces are really coming together. You know, the jigsaw is almost complete. L2, 22, we are building that jigsaw. Panelists, thank you so much for the work that you're doing in the uh, bridging infrastructure. We've learned a ton. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks Thanks a lot, guys. Bankless Nation, the great migration has begun. It's going to start slowly at first, but it is headed towards hockey stick growth. That is the prediction of the panelists. I heard at least three of them mention tokens as well. And I would just echo, these are my words, not the panelists. You should start using these systems. You should start using everything in crypto because you never know how users are going to be rewarded in the future. Um, Risks and disclaimers, guys, let's close on this. Of course, Crypto is risky. Bridging is risky too. Ethereum is risky. Everything we do in this space comes with some degree or another of risk. You could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot.
Hey, we hope you enjoyed the video. If you did, head over to Bankless HQ right now to develop your crypto investing skills and learn how to free yourself from banks and gain your financial independence. We recommend joining our daily newsletter, podcast, and community as a Bankless Premium subscriber to get the most out of your Bankless experience. You'll get access to our market analysis, our alpha leaks, and exclusive content, and even the Bankless token for airdrops, raffles, and unlocks. If you're interested in crypto, the Bankless community is where you want to be. Click the link in the description to become a Bankless Premium subscriber today. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the channel for in-depth interviews with industry leaders, Ask Me Anythings, and weekly roll-ups where we summarize the week in crypto and other fantastic content. Thanks everyone for watching.